October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is The Awakening Part 2. Last time we talked about the trial of Robert A. Grave, a conference president in New Zealand, and how Roy Allen Anderson stuck his nose in the situation, which didn't ultimately do much to save the man's job. We also talked about how Grave made enemies of an up-and-coming family in Australia, the Brinsmeads, and especially how young Robert Brinsmead was asked not to return to Avondale College owing to some critiques that he wrote about the church. He left and started a movement with his brother John called The Awakening. And just as things were getting pretty hot down under, they left for America. Okay, we're going to begin by backing up a little bit because Robert and John Brinsmead didn't come to America for vacation. They no doubt saw America as a fruitful new field for their ideas. They had allies waiting for them there, allies who may be able to financially support their work in this new field. We'll get to that in a minute. But they were also escaping something in Australia. And this isn't something I didn't bring up in the last episode because, well, we were ending that episode with their journey to America. And this particular story begins in Australia, but it doesn't end until after they're in America. So I saved it for this episode. Now, after they arrived in the States, O.B. Kuhn, an old missionary living in the Loma Linda area, urged the Brinsmeads to return to Australia and work things out with the leaders there. Bob Brinsmead said that things were too hot for him to return, so that was an impossibility. Now, that was true enough in a matter of speaking, because in September 1960, this was before he left for America, his home church in Innisfail called a meeting to consider discipline against him on account of his persistent refusal to recognize properly constituted church authority, which is wording taken from the church manual, and it was reason number eight for which a church may discipline a member. Things got strange at this event. A friend of the Brinsmeads, and not a member of the Innisfail Church, apparently crashed the business meeting, because you know everybody wants to go to a business meeting, and he apparently began speaking loudly in his friend's defense until he was asked to leave. This friend then went and published an account in A.L. Hudson's paper, complaining that the whole thing was rigged and that Bob hadn't been given enough time to appear and to defend himself. Except there's some doubt whether this friend wrote that account at all, One church leader claimed that he had talked to this friend, and the friend admitted that somebody else has written it, probably one of the Brinsmeads, and that he agreed with it, so he signed it. Whatever the truth surrounding all of these things, Bob Brinsmead did show up to the meeting late. His brother Lawrence and sister-in-law were there to speak in his behalf, and, and when his turn came, he began reading from letters until the chair reminded him that this meeting wasn't to debate theology or a referendum and how people's lives have been changed from his ministry, but to evaluate his conduct the past few years. Bob then made some kind of motion in his own favor. His brother seconded it, and the chair refused to hold a vote, a move which would, again, lead to accusations. When another motion, a motion for censure, was introduced, it passed 9-4. to 
Bob Brinsmead insisted that the vote be taken a second time, so the motion for censure now passed 11 to 4. Where those two extra votes came from, I couldn't say, but Robert Brinsmead was censured for six months. Now, if you're not familiar with Adventist forms of church discipline, censure prevents a member from holding office or teaching in this church for a period of time. Since Brinsmead was then roaming the country, preaching and writing everywhere, the vote of censure was a largely symbolic gesture. No one from the Innisfail church was going to follow him around and make sure that he didn't break the rules. Yet, its goal was to let the erring member know that the church body did not approve of something that they were doing, and it was also a necessary step toward the ultimate weapon of disapproval, disfellowship. Now, Robert Brinsmead read the writing on the wall, and he headed for America. Robert and John Brinsmead did not arrive in America quietly either. He wasn't trying to lie low and hide from the church's kangaroo police until it all blew over. Just for the record, the church doesn't have police, kangaroo or otherwise. Robert had been writing the church leaders in America, hoping for a hearing at the General Conference. He wouldn't have to wait long. A special committee was formed to meet with him and evaluate his views within weeks of his arrival. Well, naturally, as you can imagine, they found fault with his teaching. I mean, what did he expect would happen? But before we get into any of that, it's worth taking a moment to talk about what Brinsmead was actually talking about. He caused a stir, that's for sure, but why? Well, this is not a History of Evidence Theology podcast, so please understand, I'm not going to do justice to the totality of his thought, even even summarizing all of the main points, okay? But to make it simple, we're just going to say this. Brinsmead basically does for 1844 what Wheeland and Short were doing for 1888. Wheeland and Short, if you remember, were saying that the doctrine of righteousness by faith was being taught in 1888 and that church leaders had rejected it. And this rejection of the 1888 message meant that the Adventist church couldn't experience the latter rain, which is the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, Wheeland and Short were saying, the church needs to repent and to embrace the 1888 message. That's it. So, Brinsmead was doing something similar with 1844. As you know, Adventists think 1844 is the day on which the spiritual work of the Day of Atonement began in heaven. Christ moved from the holy place to the most holy place and began doing that work that was done by the earthly high priest on the Day of Atonement. Okay? This is important to keep in mind because in his reply to the General Conference and their critique of him, Brinsmead makes a distinction between the atonement on the cross and what he calls the final atonement, which can only happen after 1844 as Jesus was then and only then interceding for his people in heaven from the most holy place. This is what Brinsmead writes to the GC, quote, This is the day of atonement. God's people must gather to the sanctuary by faith in accordance with the requirements of the anti-typical Day of Atonement. When they do so, Christ will blot out their sins and give them the latter rain. Those who fail to respond will be cut off from Israel. End quote. In other words, the church needs to enter the heavenly sanctuary by faith after 1844 in order to have their sins blotted out and to receive the latter rain. If Adventists don't do that, they will be cut off, which presumably means lost. Brinsmead drew a line between the atonement made at the cross and that final atonement that is being made after 1844. 
And of course, he took it further. In responding to the GC's critique, he wrote, quote, while you do not believe in perfection of the flesh, we do believe that God's people must have absolute perfection of character while living in the flesh before Jesus comes, end quote. Brinsmead insisted that this is what Avenus had always believed, though the church called it artificial righteousness by faith. And so he shot back, quote, It bewilders us to think that you, our leading brethren, could deny that such an experience is offered to the remnant church. The teaching that Christ will perfect his people forever by the final atonement is labeled as an artificial righteousness by faith that actually consists of righteousness by one's own works. He's uh, quoting the GC there. He goes on, Jesus waits to blot out our sins from the life forever on this day of atonement, and then it's called righteousness by one's own works? End quote. Now, that may have been a little bit confusing to follow, but basically he's, he's defending this idea of the final atonement. He's defending himself against this accusation by church leaders that he's really teaching a, an artificial form of righteousness by faith, so artificial that it's actually righteousness by works, right? Because it brings me to saying you've got to be perfect in the flesh, in this life, before Jesus comes. And so the church is saying, that's salvation by works, right? That's righteousness by works. And he's saying, I can't believe that the church believes that, right? Jesus waits to blot out sins from this life forever. Right now, Brinsmead is saying, why would you call that righteousness by works? So clearly, my friends, you can tell that they're talking past each other a little bit, aren't they? Some people apparently wondered why Brinsmead needed to go on about this stuff. Well, the true medical missionary committee had the reply, quote, Our present message prepares our church members to die in the Lord, whereas the message now being proclaimed by Brother Brinsmead prepares our church members for translation. End quote. In other words, the church prepares you for death. Brinsmead prepares you to be ready to see Jesus come. Boom! Now, you can understand how this might fire some people up. Shouldn't we be perfect? Isn't that what having the character of Christ should look like? If he's, if he's living in your heart, shouldn't that lead us to perfection? Put yourselves in people's shoes back then. Here, Brinsmead has all of these Ellen White quotes. Everybody always has Ellen White quotes, okay? And hundreds of Bible verses. Everyone always has a lot of Bible verses. And they're telling people that they can be right with God right now. That Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary making atonement for you. He's, he's not just dying for you, which is what happened uh, on the cross, which is what happened in the altar of burnt offering, you know, in the, in the courtyard of the, of the sanctuary in the Old Testament. He's not just doing that. That was to transfer sins from you to him. Okay? But on the day of atonement... That's the day when the sanctuary is cleansed of all those sins. Or as Brinsmead would put it, that's the day when the record of your sin is destroyed. You see, in the first atonement, when you accept Jesus, that's when your sin is transferred from you, from you, away from you, to the heavenly sanctuary. And on the day of atonement, begun in 1844, that's when our sins are erased from the record books. You can see how this would excite Adventists, right? He's telling people with all these Ellen White quotes and Bible quotes that 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 salvation is right now. <laughs> that that we need to give ourselves over to Jesus. That when you were baptized 30 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever it was, 
Okay, that was the first atonement that you partook of. But you're not quite safe yet, are you? What about the final atonement? Have you accepted that yet? Oh, man, wouldn't that stir some church members up? Oh, my, am I right with God? I got to make sure that I'm right with God. I thought I was. Maybe I'm not. And Brinsby's telling you that the judgment's going on right now, the investigative judgment in Adventism. It's going on right now, so you never know when your name is going to be called, so you better make sure you're right with Jesus right now. We can't afford to be sleeping. Okay, so you remember who hears this stuff. And then you realize that your preacher preached some sermon on Ecclesiastes last week. And the conference president at the last camp meeting said something about, we need to have faith, brothers and sisters. And you're comparing Brinsmead on one hand and your church leaders on the other hand. And you're like, man, Brinsmead's on fire. I don't know what my church leaders are doing. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a fine book and everything, right? But, but we need a message for right now. That can empower you to realize, I got to wake up. And everyone around me is asleep. Brinsmead's the only one with the truth, right? He's the only one giving this message with some urgency. Everybody else is... Go read Proverbs, you know, oh, let's take our time. Next year, we're going to gather so much money for in-gathering, and we're going to have a great camp meeting. And Brinsmead's right now, right now, right now, right now, urgency, urgency. Brinsmead would write, The simple realization of what the Day of Atonement means is beginning to awaken God's people in different parts of the world. End quote. So if these Adventists, by the way, have been awakened by Brother Brinsmead's teaching, does that make them woke Adventists? Hmm. Well, that, my friends, is what we call an anachronism. Brinsmead's teaching tapped into something. He gave voice to people's larger discontent with the way things were going in the church. After all, we, we can't forget the key tension in Adventism is the fact that Jesus hasn't returned. Whelan's answer was that Jesus hasn't returned because the church has rejected the message of righteousness by faith in 1888. And Andreasen might have said it was due to the fact that the church has given up its historic beliefs and began compromising with the evangelicals, although I don't know if he ever put it quite like that. And Brinsmead might say that the church hasn't fully embraced Jesus's ministry in 1844 to blot out their sins. Church leaders weren't neglecting to preach the soon return of Jesus, for sure. But after hearing reports about more baptisms and more money and more everything each year, well, boy, I imagine there's a number of church members who say, something has to be wrong. How can we be growing so fast? How can we be having all these glorious missionary stories and, and, and receiving record amounts of tithes and offerings and, and building new buildings, right? And yet Jesus isn't here. So maybe these things are not indicators of what success is. And so, so some of these Adventists, therefore, wonder if church leaders had somehow lost their way. If, if the numbers that are being fed to them are somehow not indicative of the true spiritual reality. So as John and Bob Brinsmead wash upon America's shores. People are whispering, wondering about these young preachers. I mean, they're in their 20s, okay? Bob is. And they raised up such a storm in Australia and New Zealand. Now they're here. Why are they coming to America? What are they really teaching? Were they heretics? Or perhaps the third coming of Jones and Wagner, a Luther and Melanchthon, 
a Miller and Himes, a Big Frank and a Bun. Wait, where are we going with this? Oh, yeah. A piece of paper was passed around churches, and it read, quote, To Seventh-day Adventists everywhere, Robert D. Brinsmead, accompanied by his brother John, has arrived from Australia and is touring America, giving a message of righteousness by faith. It has become increasingly known in the Adventist world that there has been some sort of religious awakening within the church in the Australasian division, spearheaded by this man. Who is he? What is his background? Is his message from the Lord? We believe everyone must judge for himself. End quote. Man, this was brilliant PR, wasn't it? The paper presumed that people had heard of Brinsmead and that, probably, church leaders didn't like him. So what did this paper do? It didn't argue one way or the other here. It just asked the reader to judge for themselves. And of course, it also did more than that. It featured an article from A.L. Hudson, that rogue printer in Oregon, with excerpts from letters about Brinsmead. Hudson apparently wrote to the Australian Missionary College or Avondale University today for information about Brinsmead like any good journalist, except Hudson was not a good journalist. Anyways, Hudson had no problem printing the negative response about Brinsmead from church leaders there and the trouble that he supposedly caused at Avondale. Hudson also printed the good word from lay people in Australia who were experiencing revival because of Brinsmead and his band. One used the word awakening. Now the testimonies went on. Brinsmead was banned from camp meeting. He was forcibly kicked out of a church. Pastors who attended a Brinsmead meeting were threatened with being disfellowshipped. One person remarks in the article, quote, Religious liberty does not seem to exist today in our church, end quote. Finally, the paper concluded, quote, As Robert D. Brinsmead is touring America, Adventists are going to hear an increasing amount of publicity concerning him both pro and con, end quote. Naturally, they had a space in this publication where you could order recordings of some of his sermons and educate yourself. Imagine being an Adventist in California and reading this paper. It preempted the predictable move by church leaders to warn people about Brinsmead or to ban him. It saw those moves coming and appealed to the people to make up their own minds. Don't let church leaders think for you. With all due respect to Robert Whelan, Donald Short, M.L. Andreasen, brothers, this is how you build a movement. While Wheeland and Short had a few things in common with the Brinsmeads, the veteran missionaries did not want to lead a movement against the organized church. They just wanted the church to listen. And Andreasen, for reasons we discussed in our miniseries about questions on doctrine, was either unwilling or unable to start any movement, even with publicity from A.L. Hudson. Now, Hudson's printing and promotional shop could only take Whelan, Short, and Andreasen so far, because sometimes it must have felt like Hudson had to push these guys into the spotlight. The Brinsmead brothers, however, were made for TV, so to speak. They were young, deep students of the Bible. They were charismatic and utterly certain. And in just a couple of short years, they had built a movement of hundreds of followers in Australia and New Zealand. Hudson, of course, didn't stop promoting Wieland and Short or M.L. Andreasen. His magazine, The Church Triumphant, listed 10 things it wanted to educate Seventh-day Adventists about. Number six was the teachings of Robert Brinsmead and the sanctuary. Number seven concerned the teachings of Wieland and Short about 1888. Number eight was the warnings of M.L. Andreasen. Number nine was calling out questions on doctrine. Okay, so you're getting the idea here that, that Hudson is accumulating 
topics. It's like all of these things are just planks in his platform. He's roping them all together. He's weaving together a band of disaffected conservatives into a block. Even if all of those conservatives might not agree with each other, okay? <laughs> but Hudson is bringing them together. He's advocating at least portions of their cause and creating something new out of it. Now, Hudson and the Brinsmeads were joined by another member of this disaffected conservative block, a group called the Medical Missionary Committee, and eventually the True Medical Missionary Committee, in case, you know, the first name wasn't clear enough. Now, I had mentioned these once already in this episode, but the True Medical Missionary Committee was largely a coalition of Adventists in the medical field who felt that the church had lost sight of its health principles and that the General Conference had become dictatorial. The key word here is kingly power. Whenever you see somebody critiquing church leaders, they're using that kingly power phrase that has deep roots in, uh, in the Adventist vocabulary. Now, this committee, they, they were revolutionaries. They wanted to abolish the office of General Conference president because Ellen White had once said that, quote, it is not wise to choose one man as president of the General Conference, end quote. Maybe we should choose a woman. Okay, no, that's not what she meant. Anyways, they also demanded that not less than 24% of the General Conference committee members be true medical missionary workers because Ellen White had apparently said this must be so. They also demanded that the GC president circulate a temperance pledge and urge members to sign it. And this pledge would involve agreeing to give up meat, coffee, tea, and the like. Now, the committee argued that Ellen White had once demanded that Arthur Daniels, an old General Conference president, sign such a pledge and that Daniels had refused point blank to do so and that his successors in office, I'm quoting them here, have likewise bypassed the Lord's plain instructions on one flimsy pretext or another, end quote. Okay, that just wasn't true. Arthur Daniels was not a big fan of the temperance pledge, okay? But he met with Ellen White to explain why it wouldn't be a good time to push this pledge idea. And she agreed. Willie White, Ellen White's son, had told the men trying to circulate this petition that he feared that it would be regarded as a test of loyalty to the testimonies, meaning the writings of Ellen White. And honestly, that's how it came to be used 50 years later by the True Medical Missionary Committee. Now, the True Medical Missionary Committee will be a minor player in our overall story, but they are an example of how the protests against denominational leadership were coming from the conservative sector of the church. Sure, Robert A. Grave might be considered some early species of a progressive, although, you know, still really conservative by today's standards. But Robert Whelan, Donald Short, Emil Andreessen, Robert Brinsmead were all devout conservatives who, whatever their differences between them, nevertheless came to lament what they felt was a suffocating and stagnant culture of leadership in the denomination's highest halls. And Grave, by the way, didn't have nearly the impact on Adventist history that those other conservatives had. He got fired, and he left. <laughs> the progressives and other groups in sympathy with them would have a turn at sticking a critique to the door of the church, but they're going to have to wait their turn. Because this was Brinsmead's moment, and he had found friends in America who would support his cause. But I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that this course of action also cost him. Brinsmead had been censured by his home church in Australia, and now, in July of 1961, they met again 
to decide whether he had obeyed the censure and ceased preaching. Well, spoiler alert, he didn't. Brinsmead again protested that he hadn't had enough time to return to Australia to attend the meeting and defend himself, but his local church wasn't having it. Quote, If you had not been so busy roaming America, doing the destructive work for which you were censured in Australia, end quote, you probably could make it to the meeting on time. Now, the church clerk dutifully informed Brinsmead that the congregation had voted to disfellowship him, with only two voting in his favor. As of July 8, 1961, Robert Brinsmead was, technically, no longer a Seventh-day Adventist. Losing his membership may not have stopped Brinsmead from publishing and preaching, but it did give others pause. John and Joyce Slade, a pair who had followed Brinsmead from the beginning, made peace with the church in the wake of Brinsmead's being disfellowshipped. That was a bridge too far for the Slades, and John Slade wrote a letter to Bob Brinsmead asking him to rein it in. Slade also stepped back for being A.L. Hudson's literary agent in Australia, urging Hudson to make the next issue of his The Church Triumphant paper his last. Alan Starkey, one of Brinsmead's college mates, had left Avondale to join Brinsmead on his crusades, and he too backed away from Brinsmead. So did a dentist named James Crawford. In a few years, even the True Medical Missionary Committee abandoned him. Still, Robert Brinsmead's movement grew. A.L. Hudson had a plan to collect all of his expenses and then solicit donations to defray them so the Brinsmead brothers wouldn't have to worry about anything. One doctor even loaned them the use of his car, which, why does this never happen to me? People gave them money and controversially, perhaps even tithe money. That fall, Robert went on a speaking tour throughout California, sponsored by the True Medical Missionary Committee. His being kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church didn't stop him from being able to speak at an Adventist school in Angwin, California, a stone's throw from the campus of Pacific Union College. He opened his meetings on Friday night with a talk entitled, Foundations of Protestantism in Adventism. The next day, he talked about original sin and the cleansing of the sanctuary, and closed on Sunday afternoon. One of my favorite headlines is found in a local paper from Pomona, California, which read, Quote, banana man to give three talks, end quote. This was an allusion, of course, to the fact that he had been a pioneering banana farmer back in Australia. Classic. Robert Brinsmead was here to stay. He had survived. And back in the 1950s, a young woman was headed off to college at Avondale to become a teacher. Her father figured that she'd end up marrying a pastor at Avondale, so before she left home, he told her, I hope he's not a conference yes-man, meaning somebody who's just going to do whatever the church says. And of course, this woman came to marry Robert Daniel Brinsmead. Reflecting back after 60 years, Brinsmead said, quote, Now that was his prayer, and I have to say, it was amply fulfilled. End quote. We'll leave Bob Brinsmead running around California for now and catch back up with him later, because the church has got other problems, among them a Catholic president and a Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, 
then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.